Please open them to John chapter 12 as we finish off this chapter, looking at Jesus. Continuing in that narrative, this is Jesus' final public appearance. And words uh, that he says right before he goes to the cross. His conversation from here on out will be with his disciples, with his father, and with those who arrest him eventually. And someone says, oh, isn't this such a nice Advent series? And I say, well, it's about Jesus. And guess what Advent's about? Jesus. And he did come to be born of a baby for the purpose of dying for our sins. We will see Jesus arrested, tried, crucified, raised from the dead, and then we'll meet one more time with his disciples. Last week we saw Jesus speaking about a grain of wheat and how the grain of wheat had to die in order for the fruit to come out of it. And that those who uh, want to have eternal life must lose their life because Jesus is the treasure. He called on the Father to glorify his name with the Father answering from heaven that he would do exactly just that, that he would glorify himself. We also saw that Jesus would judge Satan and assert that he would draw all people to himself. But here we see the people following that conversation. We see people around him asking this question and saying, wait a second, I was pretty sure Uh, that Jesus, the Son of Man, the Messiah, was to reign forever. But you're talking about dying on the cross. Like, how does that make any sense? And Jesus begins to explain that. But in that, he urges the people to believe and obey while there is still time. It's here we see John explaining why some have unbelief. And ultimately, we see what is called a theology of unbelief. Why do people, some people, not believe? It is here that Jesus makes one last public statement about why he came. So if you have your Bibles, if you please open them to John chapter 12, and we'll be following along, starting where we left off in 34 to the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord says, So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And so Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. 
verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to the world, uh, sorry, did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word together, we do pray above all that you are glorified. As we continue to worship you through the preaching of your word together, Lord, I pray that your name would be lifted up high. God, we pray for other churches here in this city that are gathering in the same way to magnify your name and to declare the good news, the full gospel of Jesus Christ. And specifically, we think of Chelsea Green and Pastor Pete that you would be with him and his, and his shepherds and his leaders at his church, Lord. I pray that they would be faithful in shepherding the flock that you have entrusted to them. That if they too seek to be disciples and make disciples of Jesus Christ, that you would bless them in that, that they would see your kingdom growing as they proclaim who you are and what you have done. Lord, as we continue to worship you together, I pray indeed that you are glorified. And God, there is absolutely no way I can do this on my own. So Lord, will you not make this turn out well? So by your spirit, Lord, give me what is needed to preach this sermon with the appropriateness. I pray that you use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. In verses 34 to 43, we see, believe in the lights while you still have the light. It's here that Jesus urges the people to believe and to obey. To believe and to obey. But John also explains why there is unbelief as we continue on. But in verses 34 to 36, specifically, he's talking about believe and obey. And Jesus has actively exposed the misunderstanding and the disobedience of the people around him, constantly. <clears throat> if you love me, you will do this. You will follow me. You will walk as children of lights, etc. In verse 34, the people come and they ask him this question. I think it's a legitimate question. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. And what this passage what exactly this passage that they have in mind, we don't really know for sure, but maybe it's Isaiah 9-7, which promises that the kingdom of the expected prince of the house of David will be established forever. Maybe it's Ezekiel 37, which says, God promises that, the da that David, my servant, will be Israel's prince forever. Or maybe it's Psalm 72, which says, where the name of the king, the royal son, the Messiah, will endure forever. We don't know exactly, but we do know this that the crowd expected that the Messiah would reign forever, that he would be triumphant, and most expected him to be eternal. And there's a big question that comes through from the crowd's question here. It's this, and it's something that you and I have to answer as well, and Jesus answers, who is the Son of Man? Who is Jesus? 
who is the Messiah? What kind of son of man are you claiming Jesus is? When we know he died in public shame and disgrace and under the curse of God, what type of Messiah is this? The crowd doesn't understand that Jesus will be crucified and then raised and then endure forever. And the disciples didn't get it either. We saw that last week where they did not understand. It was when Jesus was raised from the dead that the light went on and everybody understood what exactly was happening. It was, the, it was a valid question, but the answer is something they can't fully grasp. So what does Jesus do? He gets into this big, deep theological argument with them, right? Talks about apologetics. No, that's not what he does. He actually doesn't even address the question. Because he goes and he answers the question a different way in verse 35. His answer is indirect. They have seen the light, and the light will only be there for a while, he says. His crucifixion is near. And he urges the people to believe in the light while there is still time. So rather than explaining all of the mysteries that the crowd wants to understand, Jesus wants them to know that the time is short. And he says, believe while you have the light. And then Jesus leaves in verse 36. So Jesus comes the crowd only has the light for a little while longer. And Jesus says to them, he looks them right in the eye. He looks them right in the eye. He says, while you have the light, believe the light. See, the crowd is urged to trust Jesus, who is the light of the world, based on what they know, not what they don't know. And Jesus has exposed himself over and over and over again. As he calls people to repent, for the kingdom of God is near as he raises a man from the dead, as he makes the blind see and the lame walk, as he feeds 5,000 people and he says, believe. You won't have all the answers, but I've clearly told you who I am and why I'm here. And so he urges that crowd. And what is the outcome of believing in the light? He says that you may become sons of light. What are sons of light? Well, they are people who show the ethical qualities of light and has become a disciple of the light. So you think of the passages like Ephesians 5, verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the, in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For you, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. If they trust Jesus, the light of Jesus will enter them never to leave, and the darkness will not overcome them because it can't overcome Jesus. Which also means walking as one who is in the light. So Jesus came to expose all of that misunderstanding and all of that disobedience of the people of God. And he calls those to know, uh, to now believe and obey. We are to believe the facts about Jesus, that he came from God. He lived, he died, and he rose again. And we are to believe in the person and the works of Jesus. 
that we can rely on his love and sacrifice for us on the cross. But when we receive these things through God's work in our hearts and lives, we will believe in him with a persevering love and obedience. Because we're his. Because we have a new heart. In verses 37 to 43, we have this answer of why some people don't believe. Because 37 is a pretty amazing verse when you sit down and you think about it. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Wow. I hope you have seen all that Jesus has done as we've gone through John. I really do. John was written so that we may believe. And some just keep asking questions. And Jesus poses to you today that he has given you everything you need to believe. I'm not saying asking questions aren't bad. But we also have to understand that not every question will get answered. You have to ask, after they've seen Jesus do all of these things, how could he be rejected? And John tells us why. Because those who saw all of this still didn't believe, as verse 37 says. Jesus' public ministry of signs is done. And then I'm reminded of John 1, verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He has come true. The outcome of his ministry is unbelief on the part of his own people, just like we've seen. So let me talk about this for a little bit, because I think it's hard. It's hard for me, and I hope it's hard for you, because if it's hard for me, well, maybe I'm just not smart. I don't know. But I think we struggle with this passage. Because it's hard to reconcile what we think we believe about who God is and what God's word actually just said. Because now we're going through this and we're going, wait, God, in verse 40, it says that he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. How do you reconcile that with, but God is love? How could he do that? How could he do that? What John is doing is he's tying Jesus' unbelieving generation to an earlier generation of idolatry and unbelief that God sent the Old Testament prophet Isaiah to go preach judgment upon. So John quotes Isaiah 6, and in that context, Isaiah 6 verses 9 to 10 says, And he said, Go and say to these people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make their hearts of these people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their, he- with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and be healed. Could you imagine that? How could God do that? Further, could you imagine that conversation with Isaiah? All right, God comes and he talks to Isaiah. He's about to commission him. Isaiah, I got a plan for you. I'm going to go and get you to preach my word to my people. And Isaiah's like, yeah, sweet, awesome. You know, we're going to have revival. We're going to have many people come back to you. 
This is what's going to happen. Go preach to them. And I'm going to be up front with you, God says. There's not going to be any revival. Not one. See, God sent Isaiah into a preaching ministry that was designed to harden the hearts, close the ears, and blind the eyes of Israel. And I'm reminded of another quote by another preacher that said this, and I've shared this before. The same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sin. And I've spent a lot of time dwelling upon this because I think I'm a preacher. And we are a numbers society, oriented society. And something that I come to a conclusion is, is that our faithfulness doesn't always mean numerical success. Isaiah was called to be faithful. To accomplish his will. There was a pastor who posted something not too, earlier this week that I saw on Facebook, and it said this. If Peter saw, which we just saw with the kids, right? If Peter, the apostle Peter, saw more conversions after his first sermon than the Lord Jesus Christ saw in his whole of his earthly ministry, right? 3,000 people got saved when Peter preached his first sermon. Imagine that. Standing up there, preach your first sermon, like the whole world suddenly changes. Then maybe the effectiveness, effectiveness of your preaching has less to do with your skills, he continues on, and more to do with the sovereign will of the Spirit who blows wherever he pleases. Charles Bridges put it this way, we must let him, we must let him alone with his own work. Ours is to is the care of service. His is the care of success. The Lord of the harvest must determine when and what and where the harvest shall be. So when we look at this and look at what John is writing about, it was God's sovereign purpose that his judgment would consist in a hardening of people's hearts against the gospel, which offers peace. No one will truly believe unless God opens that person's understanding, and that only happens by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot argue someone into the kingdom of God. And there's a beautiful thing that comes in this, because I stumble over my words all the time. I think I've done about five times already. Did you know that my ability to speak does not hinder God's word from working? Neither does it yours. Your job is to proclaim, to point, to declare. It's the Spirit's work to give hearts. And I think there are three ways that we can look at God's hardening of the Jews at this time. Three ways. One, we should realize that the Jews' rejection of Jesus was part of God's sovereign plan for our salvation too. God's purpose for the Jews to reject Jesus so that he might be crucified for our sins. If the Jews' heart was not hardened, Jesus would not be crucified. If Jesus wasn't crucified, his blood would not be poured out for our sins. He, would not raise, he wouldn't be raised from the dead. 
So this rejection involved both the will of the unbelieving Jews and the will of God. The apostle Peter preached, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Yet he also said to his Jewish hearers in Acts 2, 23, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. So Peter accuses his hearers of their own guilt and also ascribes that what happened, to God, what happened was God's sovereign plan. So what do you think about this? What do you do with this? If you don't like it, you don't like the plan that God has set in motion to mount the greatest rescue plan ever. The very plan of God that achieved redemption through the crucifixion of Jesus. It keeps building, though. The Jews' rejection of the gospel brought salvation to Gentiles. Me, you, unless you're Jewish. Which includes most Christians today. So if we object to God's will in hardening Jesus' Jewish hearers, we object to God's plan of our salvation. What is better response than wagging your finger at God would be Isaiah's response to God's commission. Isaiah had seen the Lord's sovereign majesty and knew better than to pit his puny wisdom against the Lord's holy will. I think most of the time, if I'm arguing with God, it's because I just don't like it. But another reason is that the gospel has two, two edges. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning and the thoughts and intentions of the hearts. Or you see in Revelation 1.16, In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. We see the gospel as a two-edged sword. It goes... It goes eternal life to those who believe, but shows judgment to those who have hardened their hearts in unbelief. And that's what Jesus warns the, the hearers here, here. That whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. A third reason is this. This passage makes it pretty clear that the hardening of hearts isn't just a natural cause, but God's judicial response. John is summing up Isaiah's words that stresses God's direct act here. If we only said something, if I only had more words to say, if I, if, I, if I was just a better public speaker, God, or maybe if I was just a little bit more friendly, or maybe a little bit more outgoing, or, or maybe, maybe, maybe. And then we forget that our job is to share the good news. It's up to God to soften hearts. Can I tell you why? No. I don't think God's word tells us. It's a mystery. Am I going to try and explain why some and not others? No. I will tell you Romans 9, verses 14 and 18, though. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's part? By no means. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens himself who he wills. I don't know the answer to all the questions. And I'm very, very uh, weary of anyone who says they are. But I trust the one who knows it all. The Pharisees themselves were this great example of this very principle. It is clear that in the last phase of Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees no longer seriously doubted the truth of what Jesus claimed. They understood it. They got it. And they knew that he really had given sight to the man born blind and he raised dead Lazarus from the grave. But still they rejected the lights of Christ, preferring that petty darkness in which they exalted themselves. They, the result was the darkness overtook them and they became far more hardened to God in the end than we could have even imagined at the beginning. Consistent unbelief will bring a hardening of the heart to the peace of the gospel. So in verse 42, it says this, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. That's pretty tragic. Jesus convinced many, even the authorities, with the result that they believed in him, but they were unwilling to confess because they feared man. Confession in this context is talking about a public indication that one is a believer in Jesus Christ. It's like baptism, a public profession of our faith. And Christ and, and his willingness to, and they, they, they were unwilling to be persecuted along with Jesus. We see that persecution that is avoided by not publicly proclaiming when they talk about how they did not want to be kicked out of the synagogue. The synagogue was the meeting place of the Jews. It was kind of like church. So those who refused to confess were confronted with a choice, a choice that you and I have to make even today. And by saying you aren't ready, you are making a choice. Confess Jesus or by accepting or be accepted in the synagogue was their choice. And they chose to be accepted in the synagogue. They were false to themselves, false to Jesus, false to those in the synagogue whose favor they wanted, and the false truth as well. It's, it's a hard-hitting section. It's a hard-hitting passage. And one that we need to wrestle with. And John doesn't hold back at all. Because 43 says, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And I say to myself, Lord Jesus, please make me love your glory more than man's. You see how hindering it is to fear man more than to fear God? They didn't even confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They're more afraid of going to their religious party on Saturday than they were 
about who Jesus was and what he came to do for them. It's hard. They loved the glory they received from human beings more than the glory of God. They preferred their reputation among people to bring rights with God and enjoy his bountifulness. They chose the temporary rather than the eternal, the, the, the meager instead of the substantial, the unworthy instead of the worthy, the folly instead of wisdom, sickness rather than health, failures instead of the almighty, and sinners instead of the holy, the fickle instead of the faithful, and the squalid in favor of the splendid, and death rather than life. So what are you choosing? What does your life show that you're choosing? So where do you stand? There's a tension that is being held in this passage. It shows us that unbelief has the effect of a hardening of our hearts to the gospel, but the faith works in the opposite way. When our eyes accept the truth that the Bible shows, our spiritual perceptiveness increases. When we sorrow over our sin and see grace to repent, our hearts are made more tender and pure. As you walk closer and closer with Christ, as the Holy Spirit turns your heart more and more, aren't you more aware of your sin? I sure am. And as I'm more aware of God's sin, or my sin, not God's, my sin, I am more aware of God's grace that he's poured out on my life. Think about Lazarus, who was brought back from death to life. All of these works were done so that you may believe. And when, when we do believe, our souls are restored by God's grace until in, in the end when we will fully be healed of every remnant of sin and corruption are gone when we are finally brought into God's presence. Folks, we have a sister who's experiencing this right now. And we mourn the loss of one of ours. But we also praising God that now she stands before him, healed from every remnant of sin and corruption. Her cancer's gone. Her pneumonia's gone. Her COVID is gone. It's gone. And now she's in the very presence of the one who died. So that's why Paul says in, to the Corinth church, we mourn as those who have hope. What does this passage show? It shows the eternal significance of how we respond to the gospel whenever it is proclaimed and offered. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Listen to me now. Now is the time that is favorable. Today is the day of salvation. When you put off the belief in Christ, it means you are rejecting him. Jesus calls you to walk in his light and offers that in this way you will receive eternal life as children of God. Maybe you're someone who calls yourself a Christian and you haven't really truly reckoned with God and surrendered your life to him. Maybe you're the person who just wants to enjoy that sin a little bit more. This is for you. 
the longer you wait, the greater the risk you take. And Jesus offers you the greatest gift to be made right before a holy God and to be with him for eternity. Don't reject the one who delivers you from darkness. Because he is, as we see in verses 44 to 50, he is the one who delivers us from darkness. It is here that Jesus makes his last statement on why he came. At the end of verse 36, Jesus goes and he hides himself. But here he kind of comes briefly out for this final statement. So listen. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Back in John 5, we saw this. In verse 19, he says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. As he did in chapter 5, Jesus says it again. There is a massive amount. There is unity, not massive. There is unity between him and the Father. And you ever wonder what Jesus, what God is like? Verse 45, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. Jesus says very clearly to you and to me, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Look at me. Look at who I am. There's no need to use your imagination or speculation as to who Jesus is or who God is, Jesus shows us. Remember back in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Here, too, is the foundation of what Paul talks about when he says the image of the invisible God. And even the author of Hebrews says the exact imprint of God's very nature. And a shroud of darkness fell over humanity and all creation when Adam sinned and Satan uh, usurped dominion. And Jesus came as light to pierce that darkness. And what happens to all who believe in him are freed from having to remain in that darkness. If he is the light who pierces the darkness, we can't trust him too much. We can't follow him too closely. You ever, like, as a, as a, if you've ever had a puppy or, I'm going to use a child. <laughs> and moms probably get this more. But you're trying to make something or bake something, and your kid's just kind of, like, all over here. You think about how frustrated you got doing that, right? Jesus doesn't get frustrated. He actually says, come closer. Come closer. I can't follow him too close. I can't. I can't trust him too much. I can't spend enough time with him. He has all power in heaven and earth. He is able to save to the uttermost all who come to him, come to God by him. None can pluck us out of the hands of him who is one with the Father. He can make all our ways to heaven bright and plain and cheerful like the morning sun cheering the traveler. Looking to Jesus, when you do, you will find light in your understanding. See light in the path of life we are, we are traveling. Feel lights in our hearts and find the days, when we find the days are dark. This is who our Jesus is. Verse 47, back to John 3, verse 7, 17. When we're looking at verse 47, which says this, 
If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come into this world to judge, sorry, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But 3 verse 7 says also, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And he says it again right here in verse 47. But here's the distinction. It was his purpose to come not as judge, but as savior at this moment. Those who hear his words but do not keep them will have his word as their judge on that last day, as he says in verse 48. Jesus has asserted that he will execute judgment at the resurrection in John chapter 5. And those who reject him will have his word judge them at the resurrection on the last day. It's not that Jesus won't judge. It's that this moment he comes to establish God's rescue plan. He comes back and he will judge. The question for you and for I is what are you going to stand before the throne of God on? His righteousness, which is imputed upon you when you believe? Or are you going to stand before him on your own merit and be like, hey, God, I helped a bunch of old people cross the street. I, I baked a bunch of meals and I brought them to my neighbor. I'm going, I did all of these cool things. I was really nice to that kid that got picked on in high school. And the Bible's clear. It means nothing. So Jesus comes and he says, time is short. Believe and walk in the light and escape the darkness. Judgment is coming. As he closes this off in verse 49, it's here, just like in chapter 5, Jesus declares that his message comes from the Father and the Father sent Jesus to speak words of spirit and life. So when the Father commanded Jesus to speak, the commandment was eternal life. He speaks as instructed by his Father. He is the one who died and rose again to deliver his people from darkness. So believe. And I know that you don't have, you've got questions and ask your questions. I love questions. But be prepared to be with an answer, for me at least. You know what? I don't know. But let me show you more about who God is. The time is short. Believe and walk in the light and escape the darkness. So what? Here we see that people around him asking some questions about what he said. It's here that Jesus very clearly, he, he's urging them, he's, he's pleading with them. The time is short, so believe and obey. It's here we see John explaining why some have unbelief. It is here that Jesus makes one last public statement about why he came. In this last statement, Jesus warns those who hear him that the time is short, so they should repent and believe. And I will warn you of the same. Time is short. Repent and believe. John explains that their unbelief is filled, fulfilled in Scripture. And Jesus closes out his public teaching in, in John's gospel by once again saying that. And pointing to everything, everything that he has done. And that he is one with the Father. He urges those people who are listening. He's urging you and for me that while they have light, follow it. The people alive, when Jesus first spoke these words, those words had an opportunity to believe. Just as everyone exposed to these words has the very same opportunity.
Time is short. The while is not long and will not last forever. We must believe. We must walk in the light. And it is only by that that we can escape the darkness. See, verse 43 describes some who refuse to confess Jesus because they love the glory of man more than the glory of God. If we love the empty glory we stand to gain from the worldly people for worldly reasons, we cannot have the glory that comes from God. But if we love God's glory, we will, he will, we will be considered, we will consider the world's glory to be rubbish because Jesus is the treasure. Time is short. Believe and walk in the light and escape the darkness. And I think this week has been a great reminder for you and for me as we mourn the loss of one of our sisters. Time is short. Believe. And right now, if she could, she would scream it from the mountaintops. Believe. Let's pray. Father God,